your Bibles now to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We are picking up the narrative in Luke's gospel in our preaching series called The Seeking Savior because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost according to Luke's gospel. And so here we have the introduction of what's been called the Annunciation by the angel Gabriel. Last week we saw the angel Gabriel appear to Zechariah and announce the birth of John the Baptist. Well now six months later he appears to the virgin Mary and tells her that she will give birth to the Holy Son of God. It's a powerful juxtaposition of two announcements, two miraculous births, some similarities but also some great differences as well. And Mary asks the question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel says, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High will overshadow you to cause this miraculous event, this divine conception. So I've entitled today's sermon, God's Overshadowing Power, to talk about the powerful, overshadowing presence of God in her life and ours as well through this story. So I'm going to read it in its entirety, verses 26 to 38, and then draw out some shadows, if you will, from this passage in contrast as it relates to God's overshadowing power. So please follow along, beginning in verse 26 all the way to verse 38. And then I'll pray for us. Let's go. In the sixth month, that's six months after he gave the announcement to Zechariah, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her whom was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Amen. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. God's overshadowing power. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for your great power. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, though this miracle be unique in Mary's life and in church history, Lord, your power is something that you offer to each one of us, Lord. Your power comes to us through the Holy Spirit, overshadows various events in our lives, and overshadows our entire life, Lord. And so God, as we think upon Mary's life and think upon our own lives and how your power comes to us, Lord, this morning, I pray, God, that we would see the glory of Christ, the light of Christ, and it would cast a shadow over all of our lives for the better. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. St. Catherine of Siena said the following about shadows. She said, it's only through shadows that one comes to know the light. 
It's only through shadows that one comes to know the light. Shadows, the greater the light, the greater the shadow, right? I was pulled into this idea, as you can tell, of overshadowing and overshadows. And how does the Bible speak about this? And certainly the Ark of the Covenant, we have the cherubim with the wings that overshadow the mercy seat. Or how about when James and Peter and John go to the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter sort of catches himself saying, oh, we should build some tabernacles for you and for Moses and Elijah. And then a bright cloud overshadowed them. Do you remember that account? And God spoke through the cloud, said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Kind of like, shut up, Peter, <laughs> listen to him. These moments in the Bible in our lives where shadows are cast over things and shadows are powerful in this account with Mary where the power of God overshadows or envelops her. And sometimes they kind of capture us into these shadows or sometimes when they overshadow, by contrast, something overshadows another. I was thinking this week where the news was reporting over and over that Trump's absence at the GOP kind of overshadowed the whole event was the language that they used, right? So events in the world that can kind of overshadow and capture us up in these things. And we think about even Jesus where he is the light of the world and he blazes his light into the world. And as we look at the life of John the Baptist and Mary and these stories and the shadows of God as they cast over the whole story of God, we're going to look at it through the lens of how things create contrast and overshadowing. And so I have three points as I normally do, and it'll come through this text, but it's also going to lay characters side by side from this passage and events and see how one overshadows the other's from Mary's life and Jesus and John as well. And so if you're taking notes today, we're going to look at how God's power overshadows great, greatness with the greatest. And that will be a contrast between John and Jesus. Greatness with the greatest. Secondly, meekness with majesty. That will be a contrast between Mary and Jesus. And thirdly, death with deliverance. We're actually going to look at a contrast between Eve and Mary. So let's begin with this first point, God's power and how it overshadows greatness with the greatest. From this passage I've already alluded to from last week to this week, we have two birth announcements by the same angel, the angel Gabriel. He goes to the uh, relative of Mary, Elizabeth, and she conceives in her old age, and now he appears to Mary as a young virgin, likely in her teen years, and says that she will give birth to the Son of God. Now, I've entitled this point, Greatness with the Greatest, because if you look closely at both announcements, both are described as great. You pick that up from Jesus, for example, and I'll put them up on the screen. Jesus says, he will be great, verse 32, we saw that, and will be called the Son of the Most High. But if you flip just a few verses earlier in verses 14 and 15, John has said, many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And so at first blush, you read them and you say, these two characters look almost identical. Two Miraculous births, two great men of God are appearing through the same angel six months apart by relatives. But if you were to read them side by side and say these are equals, you would be wrong. <laughs> because Jesus is great, full stop, right? Jesus is great, the son of the most high God. Jesus is God himself come in the flesh. And John is great before the Lord. 
It's a qualification there, right? John's greatness comes because he is preceding one, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one to prepare the way before him. Now, if you don't know your Bibles very well, it's important to realize that John was great. Not just a little great. Like, if we have celebrity preachers today, you know I'm not big on celebrity preachers, but if one would qualify for it, it certainly would be John the Baptist. People came from miles in the wilderness to hear this bold, fiery preacher of repentance and baptism, preparing the way for Jesus. People came and the religious leaders were perplexed by him as well and they were a little bit afraid because if they said he was from God, they'd have to get behind him. But if they turned against John the Baptist, the crowds would turn against them, right? And so they were always kind of hedging with John because he was so popular. And Jesus doesn't say of John the Baptist, he's stealing glory from God, he's too popular. No, he says of John the Baptist, no one born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. At that time, he's the greatest prophet ever. John the Baptist was an incredibly anointed, gifted, godly prophet leading to Jesus. As was his role and destiny in life. And yet, next to Jesus, he said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal strap. Wait, what? Two great individuals, and yet John the Great One, his greatness was overshadowed by the greatness of Jesus Christ, his relative halfway, according to the flesh, through Mary, right? In that contrast, he said, he must, referring to Jesus, John said, he must increase and I must decrease. In fact, John went so far to say, that's how my joy is complete. If people make much of Jesus, if I prepared the way for Jesus, then I am happy with my life and I will fade into oblivion and obscurity and largely be forgotten as long as Jesus is worshipped and remembered. It's powerful, isn't it? John the Baptist paved the way for Jesus and then he got out of the way. Some of his own followers, disciples of John, switched teams. Some of the 12 that make up Jesus' 12 came from John and they switched over. And John was not put off by this because that was the purpose of his life, to find the Messiah. He baptizes Jesus and he prepares the way for Jesus. God's power overshadows greatness with the greatest. Now, here's where this ties to our lives, brothers and sisters. I believe all of us long for greatness. And I don't think that's sinful in of itself. Now, you could be selfish and great at the expense of others, but we all long for greatness in the world. We long to have great careers, great lives, great families, and part of that is absolutely right. As long as we have this same heart of John the Baptist, where our greatness is enveloped with the greatness of the Lord, that our greatness exists to lift up Christ and make much of Jesus rather than ourselves. If you put yourself at the center, it becomes idolatrous. Teens, we learned about this this week, right? When you put yourself at the middle and it becomes an idol, that greatness becomes corrupted and turns inward on itself. But if that greatness is a reflection of Jesus to the world, it actually exalts and glorifies him. 
In Genesis, we're told that when God created the heavens and the earth, he created two great lights. Remember this? The one to rule the day and the one to rule the night. It was the sun and the moon. But we know now, scientifically speaking, the moon doesn't have much light except for what? It's just reflecting the sun. It is a great light at night, but all it's doing is reflecting the glory of the sun back at us. And brothers and sisters, the whole world has been called to be a mirror, to be a moon, if you will, to be a great light, to reflect back the light of the sun, Jesus Christ. Amen? And when we get that, we will be living for God's purpose in our lives and destiny. And like John the Baptist, we will complete our joy. It's a great, great quote from Jonathan Isaac. He's the NBA Orlando Magic uh, basketball player. He said the following. This was a recent quote in the Christian Post. He said, for me, true greatness is simply this. The world defines greatness as who you are, accolades that you carry, what you've done, and will rank you on how great you are. But I believe that true greatness, not the world's kind of greatness, but the true greatness is found in no one other than the example of Jesus Christ. To lay down one's life, to stand up for the marginalized, to love people where they're at. That this is where, excuse me, this is what your greatness is. Being a light unto the world, the way that God has commanded us to, that is what makes you truly great. Can I hear an amen? John the Baptist was great before the Lord. And we see this account. He plays a very unique place, by the way, in biblical history. But there is an echo of that passion in all of our hearts to prepare people for Jesus, to lead them to repentance, to exalt Christ and get out of the way. And if one day we are largely forgotten, if people remember the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, the greatest one of all, our lives will have been truly great. Amen? Secondly, so first, God's power overshadows greatness with the greatest we see from this account. Secondly, God's power overshadows meekness with majesty. Meekness with majesty. I want to reread just the context of where Mary is at when the angel comes to her. In verses 26 and 27, it says, In the sixth month that's the, of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, the angel Gabriel sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now we're familiar with this story. We love this story. We tell it every Christmas, right? The angel appears to her and to the shepherds out in the night sky in Bethlehem. They go there because there's no room in the inn, so they end up in a feeding trough. But we have to read it with fresh eyes to really think about what is happening here. We see that the eternal, almighty, infinite Son of God is entering into the universe, right? The author of life is writing himself into the story. And we've seen God send deliverers before. For example, with Moses, right? And it makes sense to us when Moses in the basket ends up in the castle, right? Becomes a, a prince of Egypt, raised up right under Pharaoh's nose, right? But then when God himself enters the story, he doesn't end up in Jerusalem in Herod's castle with Drusilla or Herodias. That would make sense to us, right? Like born in prestige and excellence. When God writes himself into the story, he finds a teenage girl who's born and lives in Nowheresville. 
Because back then, the saying was, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? That's what, what the disciples asked when the, they said Jesus was from Nazareth. Wait, like what? Like Jesus was born in the wrong zip code, right? He was born on the wrong side of the tracks. By the way, he wasn't born there. He was born in a feeding trough. Mary was likely a teenager. We know this because the betrothal time in Jewish customs was usually in the teen years leading up to a union, so they had not consummated the marriage yet. So everything is on the line for Mary. And by the way, she's betrothed to Joseph, who we know from elsewhere, is a carpenter. A very respectable trade, but they're not going to be bringing in the book of bucks. He's a carpenter. God when he writes himself into the story, the holy son of God, look at the contrast of what the angel says of her child. He will be called great, right? The son of the most high. He'll have the throne of his father, David, reign over the house of Jacob forever. Kingdom, no end. Feeding trough. Rule over the house of David. And here he's coming to a virgin who has no money no reputation. What little reputation is now hanging on by a thread and about to snap because of this arrangement. And we see in the kingdom of God, in the economy of God, how God confounds the proud and the prestige with meekness and humility. And this is the principle that comes out of this second point, brothers and sisters. That exaltation comes through humiliation. That glorification comes through descending. Just like John the Baptist, we said, he must decrease, we must increase. Well, in the incarnation itself and through the death of Jesus, God models it for us. Philippians 2. Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant in Nazareth, in a feeding trough, being found in the likeness of men and humbling himself even to the point of death, namely death on a cross, one of the most humiliating, terrible forms of execution. And somehow how in the kingdom, God likes to turn things upside down. Everything seems to be inverted and opposite of what you would expect in this story. Think about the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom and they shall inherit the earth, right? And we like alpha leaders, right? We like people who assert themselves and push themselves over and we follow those people. And I'll tell you, that's a way to be led astray really fast in the kingdom, because God says that the way to true leadership is through getting down and washing feet, like Jesus, through servanthood, being willing to lay, your down line, lay down your life for others just like Jesus did. And that is modeled in the contrast between the choice of Mary, her station in life, and the one who's come to save the world. Meekness and majesty juxtaposed side by side just like God intended. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, as we think of our own salvation, the Apostle Paul picks on this irony and says the following. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not 
to bring to nothing things that are. So why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and salvation and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Everything about your salvation from the giving of Jesus Christ to the saving of you by grace alone is so that we would boast in the Lord alone. Amen? There's nothing we have to boast about. And if you would be great for God, again, as we said under that first point, descend, reflect his glory, and remember that the way God works things in the world, the way that King Jesus rules in the world is he chooses what is low. He chooses the humble. He chooses the meek, and he does mighty things through them. We don't go for greatness direct. We don't go for mightiness or majesty directly. We enter through meekness and experience his majesty. Amen? God's power overshadows first greatness with the greatest. Secondly, meekness with majesty. Thirdly and finally, God's power overshadows death with deliverance. Death with deliverance. And I had our scripture reading earlier where Roseanne read Genesis 3 so I could pull in some of the content here because theologians love to show how Mary now becomes a second type of Eve, if you will. You say, well, how so, pastor? Think about it. Eve was called the mother of all living, but actually through her transgression, she brought about death and Adam's as well to all of humanity. And through her offspring, now death has spread to all of us. We've received life, but we've also received the curse that has come upon her. But there was a promise that overshadowed that curse. Did you catch it in Genesis 3 where God said through her seed, one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And the first serpent was a fallen angel who entered the scene and gave false news, bad news that led us astray. But the second angel that appears gives the good news that brings life and liberty and Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, onto the scene. Mary was deceived, excuse me, Mary, Eve was deceived. She believed the lie. Mary believed the truth. And because of her, the second Adam is born. And all of humanity that trusts in Jesus are moved from the first Adam and that death and decay and darkness into the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And it overshadows the death with life and liberty. The curse is overshadowed with the blessings of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We see a contrast between Mary, the disobedience of Eve, and the obedience of Mary here. This is not a small sacrifice of obedience for Mary. Her reputation is on the line. She'll be looked at suspiciously the rest of her life. Her relationship with Joseph is on the line. Remember from the other gospel, he resolves to quietly divorce her, Matthew's gospel says, before the angel appears to mend that relationship up. And her own child, now she's giving him up to God, not simply as an act of dedication like we as parents do as we give our children to the Lord. She is literally going to watch her own child be crucified for the sins of the world. 
And Mary is a heroic follower of Jesus. And though she is the object of grace, not the source of grace for us as believers, she is still one that we look to and say, Lord, give me that kind of faith. She is faithfully following Jesus all the way to the upper room in Acts chapter 2 where the 120 are praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit. We are told that Mary is still there and she is waiting for the promise of the Father. She receives the promise of the Father here and she waits. She is filled with the Holy Spirit. She is a bold follower of her son, Jesus Christ, for all of her life. She gave it all up for God. What incredible faith. She is not sinless, but she did give birth to the sinless son of God. And her sins are forgiven just like yours and mine through faith in her own son, the son of God, the son of the most high God. She says, I am a servant of the Lord. And would we, brothers and sisters, would we, no matter the cost, whatever God asks of us, say, I am a servant of the Lord. For nothing, if nothing, if this virgin birth is not impossible for God, if her cousin giving birth in her old age is not impossible for God, there is nothing impossible for God to do in your life as well. The valley of the shadow of death, I'm going to invite the worship band back up here. The valley of the shadow of death hangs over all of us. Death in its cloud, it's Psalm 23. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's throughout the Bible. The death and the curse of death that came through Eve's transgression, it hangs like a gloomy cloud over all of us. But there is one being born in this text who has been born, who has died for your sins on the cross to cancel out the valley of the shadow of death with his life. His resurrection power now shines gloriously over our life and dispels that shadow with his glory. And if you, brothers and sisters, would embrace Jesus, reflect his glory like the moon, if you would descend as he ascends in your life, if you would descend into meekness to see his majesty rise like the sun in your soul, and if you, like Mary, would embrace it by faith and say, God, you can do anything. You can raise me from the dead because you raised Jesus from the dead. Your whole life will be transformed starting today unto eternity, amen? That shadow does not need to dog you. It can be dispelled because as St. Catherine said, it is only through shadows that one comes. Thank you.